I think society has pulled together. I think society has become a kinder place, appreciating place. I believe in human beings and I think we will see, we'll see those changes carried forward. Hey everyone, I'm Sina Hagiha and welcome to First Serve. The path to live a fulfilled and abundant life is to learn, grow and serve. And that is what this podcast is all about. We'll have guests on the show who are utilising their skills to make a positive impact to our world. Together we can gain a lot of insights, expand our knowledge and apply our learnings to serve others to the best of our abilities. In this episode, we're going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and our health. This pandemic has exposed gaps in our economy, our food supply chains and our healthcare systems, amongst many other things. It has demonstrated that we do not have the structure in place to deal with situations of this magnitude. Striving towards a healthier population is one of the ways we can be more resilient towards new threats and that is in our own hands. Today we have a guest on the show who is serving people that need it the most. He is a doctor who has been working in the COVID unit of the hospital since the pandemic started, but this is not his area of expertise. He is currently undergoing GP training and obtaining a master's degree in sports and exercise medicine to work in rehabilitation medicine in the future. He studied medicine at the University of Liverpool and has worked in the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital and also in the Robert Jones and Agnes Hunt Orthopaedic Hospital. Here's my cousin who always has a smile on his face. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hamid Hashimi. Hi, Sina. How are you going, man? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, buddy. Good thanks. Thanks for having me on. No worries. So the first question I want to ask you is quite a deep question. All right, let's go. Let's go deep. Let's go deep. <laughs> 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 what is your purpose and why did you become a doctor? Yeah, that is, there's a, there's a pretty heavy start, but why not? Let's do it. Let's do it. So in that question of why do you want to become a doctor is, is one that everybody who wants to go to medical school has to wrestle with and really try and understand when you're about 16, 17 or 18 years old, maybe a bit older. And and it, and it's a it's a difficult one to answer, but I, th- I think over the past ten twelve years, I've I've really begun to understand that question a lot more and the answer to that question a lot more. So for me, when I kind of and even as a teenager, I kind of looked at the world and I thought you've got to try and have the the biggest possible positive impact that you can on the world. And what that meant for me was uh, that I mean, that's different things to different people, right? But for me, the biggest and most positive impact that I could have on the world was just trying to help other people through times of hardship. And that, for me, took the form of trying to help people through periods of uh, illness or you know, times where their, their health is, has been impacted. I, I kind of spent a bit of time trying to understand what it was to become a doctor and what being a doctor actually meant. And, you know, it... it it means a thousand different things to be a doctor. But the things that are important to me are the notion of being compassionate to other people and just trying to make the world a little bit better. 
you know, if everybody tries to make the world a little bit better, then it can, if everybody's doing that, then the world becomes a much better place. So I thought being a doctor would give me the ability, give me the capacity to try and help other people in, in that way, try and make their lives a, a little bit, a little easier, a little bit better. Uh, in terms of purpose, I suppose the two kind of go hand in hand. The purpose is to try and live a fulfilled life. And for some people that, that is, you know, Roger Federer absolutely smashing tennis for, <laughs> for 20 years. And for other people, it's, it's doing other, don't get me wrong. If I could, if I could have done what Roger Fed has done, then I'd definitely do that. <laughs> I'm just not good enough at tennis. But for me, it was the most logical kind of way to lead a happy life was to just try and help other people. And medicine was that route for me. And I, I think over the past 15 years, it's, it's, it, the whole time of going through A-levels, going through medical school, I think that has only been reaffirmed in my head that I, I achieve happiness by, by trying to serve others. So I'd say that's my calling. Yeah, that's amazing, man. So like I mentioned in the introduction, you've been working in the COVID unit of the hospital. So what has it been like working in the hospital during this period? What's the general vibe in the hospital during this pandemic? Yeah, things have changed. We've got to think this all kicked off back in you know, March time, beginning of March uh, back here. Well, really February time, I suppose it was. But it's, things have changed. We kind of went through that early preparatory stage where there was perhaps a degree of amusement, actually, from the medical community because we didn't really know what we were dealing with. And there, was all, the, there were all these changes were taking place. And then as, as the reality of the situation began to kind of really set in, things became a little bit more uncertain, uh, a little bit more uncomfortable for us, in a sense. Uh, and what really kind of made it clear to us that things were, were quite serious was was the the kind of communication that was going on between us as the medical professionals and then the information we're getting from government is that it's, it was rapidly changing um, mm. and it was and it was on a daily basis sometimes actually within the same day different yeah. guidelines coming out different ways of us doing things. So that was a really kind of tumultuous time around March and April. It was really quite tumultuous. Didn't really know what was going on, and particularly where I worked with the demographic of the population up there. Uh, we, I think we were hit comparatively to other parts of the country. We were hit quite hard, which obviously took its toll on, you know, the medical staff. But also you really see it taking a toll on the patients and the families that you're that you're serving and that was quite difficult but fortunately now it appears to be that we're kind of coming out of, of of that that phase that we were going through a couple of months ago certainly now the cases are have really dropped off which is encouraging but as we speak society's returning to some semblance of normality and there's always a risk of those case numbers starting to go up again so i I think throughout the whole period, it's been a bit uncertain, difficult to really predict and know what's what's around the next corner. But I think it's been a challenge that, as a as a as a workforce, has brought us closer together. 
and I think on a, on a larger scale as a country, I think it's, I think it's brought us closer together, brought us some greater appreciation of what we had. Mm-hmm. So what is going through your mind when you finish your shift? What's the typical day of Hamid? <laughs> so walk uh, us through your day. Typical day. I, I would love to say I get up at like two hours before my shift starts and do like an hour of meditation or something like that. But um, it invariably is just trying to maximize the amount of sleep I get. <laughs> yeah. uh, because the working days now are quite long. So the the standard working day that we've got at the moment on the emergency COVID rotor, which we're still on, is, um, is 12 and a half hours. And then when you factor in kind of commuting time to and from work, actually the time out of the house can be somewhere near uh, 14 hours. Hmm. So at the moment we start at nine o'clock in the morning and it will be a case of just just tackling whatever lands in our in our plate on our plate kind of on a day-to-day basis really and that can be a, a string of patients who are not very unwell people who we can quickly see and quickly get out of the hospital um, and that can vary all the way up to people who are really really sick and need to go to itu um, or, or need other kind of interventions pretty quickly so the, the in terms of a typical day, in the NHS, when you're particularly when you're working on the sort of the sort of basis that I'm working um, on this kind of COVID rotor, there's no kind of degree of <laughs> predictability to your work. Things vary quite a lot, but but generally, what we're seeing at the moment is the kind of secondary effects of of, of this virus in that. People who would other who should have come in uh, when things were quite bad with COVID are now coming in, or people who have had COVID when uh, you know a couple of months ago are still symptomatic and they're coming back saying my breathing is completely off, can't sleep at night, all this all this sort of stuff. So that's the that's the vague sort of work that we're dealing with at the moment. We're not getting at the moment. We're not getting those that heavy influx of COVID patients who are acutely short of breath, mm. really quite unwell, got horrible temperatures. We're, we're, we're not seeing that kind of wave of patients coming through the door at the moment, which is encouraging because it, it indi- indicates that our, our fight against this virus has, has progressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly from where we were a couple of months ago. But I can imagine during this period, you've probably seen a decline in the number of patients that come in for other issues. Maybe they feel guilty for coming in during this period or they actually fear coming into the hospital because it could be seen as a hub for the virus, a hub for contracting the virus. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point, man, because that, that's, that's been such an issue. And I... Well, I mean, I've said this to you before, is that I didn't realize how much of an impact the virus would have in that sense. Because obviously that we were expecting some patients to come in and be unwell with the virus. But what we weren't really expecting was, you know, vast numbers of patients not to be coming in with things that we wanted them to be coming in for. 
And I think we've got to look at ourselves as a medical profession. We've got to, the government have got to look at themselves and the information that was given out. Because I, I don't think the public were, were properly guided in that sense. Uh, I think we could have done more to guide the public and say, look, if you're sat at home and you think you're having a heart attack or you know, you've got a bit of weakness in your arm because <laughs> you think you might be having a stroke, still come into hospital, still here for that sort of stuff as well. Like it, everything hasn't completely shut down. We've just stopped certain aspects of the healthcare provision. And, and now, certainly over the past month, really, we've seen those patients coming back in. And I think we've done them a, a heck of a disservice by not getting that, that information out to them and saying, hmm. yeah, there is this horrible virus going on. The hospitals have changed. Healthcare has changed in this country pretty quickly. But, but we're still here for you. We're still here for you if you've got other things going on. We don't want you to sit at home. We've still got cardiologists in the hospital. We've still got stroke experts in the, in the hospital all these other surgeons in the hospital if you need things come in because i think there's there's a degree of comorbidity that's come along with this covid virus that we weren't really anticipating but we're now beginning to see the the the, the true face of it yeah what was unclear to me a little bit was the process around admitting yourself to hospital if you did have symptoms of covid 19 at what point do you say, yeah, I really need to go to the hospital for this? And what is the process around that when you get to hospital? Is there yeah. a special area for COVID patients? Yeah, yeah, okay. So the, uh, first of all, the, the government website is pretty good for, for generally this sort of advice. So uh, for anybody who's not too sure what to do, the government website is, is generally pretty good. They've got a great coronavirus section that I know a lot of like, health professionals that I work with refer to on a kind of daily basis because of the guidance. But generally what happens, if you, if you think you've got symptoms of uh, COVID-19, the advice would be to stay at home and try and manage it at home. And if you think you've got those symptoms, things like a temperature, cough, the advice is to, is to self-isolate because that's how you stop transmission. And in, and in the vast majority of people, actually, they won't need anything fancy. They won't need hospital treatment. They won't need much in the way of medication. They just need to allow their body to try and ride out that, that virus. Now, there will be a small number of people who won't be able to do that. So that's kind of where your question comes in, right, is that, what what happens if you're sat at home, you're feeling a bit rough and you think you can't really deal with it? And that's the key. If you feel as though you're not really coping with, with your symptoms at home, if you feel as though you're, you're deteriorating, you're getting worse, that's when you need to get some help. It's like with anything. If you've got a bit of pain in your knee, you kind of carry on as best you can. But when it starts to become a bit more of a problem, that's when you go to... Your, either your pharmacist, your doctor, you go, see, go get some help about it. And that's the same with COVID. So if you're at home and you're self-isolating and you feel really unwell, either contact your GP who can review you over the phone and, and, and give you some advice, or they can send you into hospital. If you think you're really unwell, then you can call, 
call an ambulance and they will come. They've got the, they hopefully have the correct protective gear and they can come and get you and bring you into hospital where hopefully you won't have to. But doctors like myself will be waiting for you where we can try and review you, give you a bit of it bit of extra kind of treatment that you might not be able to get your hands on in the community um we've got you know investigations that we can do and then people who are really unwell then we can start to get other other specialties involved people like intensive care doctors involved as well hopefully not but they're all they're there if we need now throughout this time i speak i don't speak for every single hospital in the country because i don't know but for the vast majority of hospitals in the country, I've got a lot of friends who work at, at different regions, so I've got the benefit of knowing what how different parts of the country are dealing with it. And it's largely, largely the same, that if you're a suspected COVID-19 patient, there may well be a separate entrance to the hospital for you. Mm. so that we're separating those who we think may have the virus from those who we aren't assuming have the virus at all, haven't got a suspicion of them having the virus. So that, in a sense, protects those patients who that we were kind of talking about earlier, those people who've been sat at home with other conditions, that protects them. And then we also have, so the whole dual is, the, the assessment areas are separate, and that's kind of where I've been working is is in the, the, the kind of COVID-19 equivalent of an A&E. So those patients, those COVID-19 patients aren't sat in A&E with other people and making potentially making them unwell. So they come up to us. And then if we feel as though they're well enough to go home, we'll give them treatment, we'll give them advice, we'll, and we'll send them home. If they need to be admitted, then there are kind of designated wards where patients can go to. And certainly a couple of months ago, that we, we had a quite a significant number of wards actually in the hospital, which were designated COVID wards. Whereas now that there may only be, I think in the hospital I work in, there may only be a couple of wards that are like that. Um, and I think they're trying to move that to, to even just one ward. So at all times we could do our we could do something to try and keep COVID patients away from non-COVID patients. But that's generally the kind of thing that happens when you come into hospital. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to the previous point that I mentioned around some patients that may not come into the hospital because of the fear of coming in, would you have been overwhelmed if other patients came in with the COVID patients or do you think you would have been able to manage? I think there's a good chance. If we look at the numbers, I think there's a good chance we would have been pretty overwhelmed. We, well, where I work, We've got a population there who are generally either elderly um, who, uh, and, and obviously that comes with comorbidity, things like heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, or they're younger, but, but of it in kind of like lower socioeconomic status, which, which comes along with its, with its own health issues as well a lot of alcohol, um, a lot of drug abuse as well. So we've, we've got a population where I work who uh, were probably going to be the sorts of people who are a bit more susceptible to something like a virus like this. Mm-hmm. So 
I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's really difficult, man. I think we can, we can kind of um and ah about what, what we should have done. But I think that the, the, re- the, re- the reality of it was is that we weren't fully aware of what was going on yeah. when things really started. And then also, I think from, from going from government down to kind of healthcare professional, like we, I don't think the communication was quite there. Hmm. So I, I think it was always, always pretty difficult to try and manage a situation like this. So I think, I think if, if we, yeah, even if we did try and have to deal with all the COVID patients and all the other patients that we were dealing with, there's a good chance we probably would have been overwhelmed looking at, looking at the numbers of patients who came in and then looking at what we would normally expect to have at that time of year mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the sheer lack of what I'm going to term as normal patients coming in. I think if you add those two together, we probably would have been, but it's difficult to say. It's difficult to say. One thing that would have certainly made things a lot easier would have been, and, and I've, I've thought about this and we've, we've had this discussion at work and the, and the doctors that I work with is, is in the early kind of stages of, of the, of the virus when we were dealing with it in this country to get a, a, a swab result when you swab a patient. It's just taking absolute donkey's years. And it's just, it's almost laughable. It's not laughable because it's horrendous, really. But it's just, it's taken us four or five days to get a result. And what that means for somebody who's potentially just coming in with a bit of a bacterial chest infection, they haven't got this COVID virus, but they've come in coughing, short of breath, got a temperature. We have to treat them as though they might have this, this COVID. Hmm. So that patient could be, could have been in a, in an area with COVID patients, even though they didn't have it, but we were just waiting for a swab result that Mm. took four or five days to come back to us. And by that point, you know, even if at the time when we took the swab, it was, it was negative. So we get a negative result. They've been sat with, you know, three or four other patients in a ward you have it and how results have come back positive. So what do you do then? Do you then swab them again and wait another four or five days? Potentially in that 10 day period, that person's gone from being pretty unwell at admission to being really unwell. So it was, it was difficult for us. It was really difficult for us. Going back to what I said, as why I became a doctor is you want to try and help people. And I think, this this virus really tied our hands behind our back whilst we were trying to look after people. We didn't mm-hmm. really know what to try and offer. We didn't know whether we should be giving certain medications. Should we be, you know, really trying to trying to give some of the other types of medications that we use for people when they have shortness of breath? We, we didn't really know. Luckily, now we've got we've got this information that's come out in this huge study at, uh, at Oxford University. So we know we know we know now to try and use uh, this this steroid medication called dexamethasone. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's that's relatively recent. That's a huge amount of work went in to get that. But it, it still left us with you know a couple of months of dealing with the virus in this country where we were really struggling to manage these patients really. And it was either a case of we'll try and. If you're if you're fit enough, we'll try and mechanically ventilate you and, and do what we can. But if if you're not well enough for that, then it's a, it's sort of, we'll 
let's see how you go, which is really difficult for us with something like that. But normally people, patient comes with an infection, we can give them antibiotics, we can try and sort this, try and sort that for them. With this, we really didn't know, really didn't know. Yeah. I think you, you add that uncertainty of dealing with the cohort of patients and the number of patients that we were dealing with at the peak with the normal patient flow that we would have, that we would be expecting, I think we probably would have been overwhelmed quite significantly. But it's, it's difficult to say that with any degree of certainty, but it's, it's probably what would have happened. Yeah. And how prepared do you think you were for this pandemic? Because I can imagine they did they teach you about how to deal with pandemics at medical school? Or did you no. have any sort of preparation for this? No, no, mate. Like it, it would have made things easier. Like doing a dry run, you know, <laughs> like a drill. Because I know sometimes don't you do walkthroughs of what happens in an emergency yeah, situation yeah, and definitely. other situations? But did you not have a what happens if there's a virus outbreak? Let's do a let's do a drill. Let's walk this through and see no. how what would happen I mean, that that sound it sounds so sensible it sounds like it's such a sensible thing to say given the world that we live in and the, the the viral pandemic risk that we know exists hmm. that seems like a sensible thing to do but was is it ever something that's been entertained not as far as i'm aware hmm. not as far as i'm aware i know with when they had ebola patients coming back we had there were there were protocols in place then but that was you know that was small scale stuff that was small scale stuff there's nothing like trying to prepare for something like this but it's in a, in a sense dude trying to cope with something like this requires such a massive upheaval it's difficult to try and to simulate it yeah it is difficult to try and simulate because mm. it's not an individual case where for example i mean when we do when we learn to manage a cardiac arrest we do these arrest simulations and pretty much every doctor kind of vaguely knows what to do some are obviously better than others because that's that's the kind of role that they they kind of fit into but in terms of simulating something like this it's, it's pretty difficult but what, what i think is is perhaps more important is as i mentioned earlier when we know and we knew this viral pandemic risk exists. How is it? How has it taken us so off guard? Hmm. Like we, so when we started, man, we had like, um, we had testing for our protective, uh, personal protective equipment, PPE. Yeah. And the masks that we started with were like badass. So they were they were like pretty heavy duty. They were uncomfortable to wear. Don't get me wrong; they were uncomfortable to wear, but they were pretty robust and pretty sturdy. Mm -hmm. You could feel that that it, it was offering you some degree of protection from yeah. the, the environment that you were going into. Particularly when we were having to go and review patients, and they're floridly unwell, really coughing at you. Having a good, robust mask made made you feel more confident and allowed you to make a more comprehensive assessment of, of that patient you were seeing. And what that what happened is we ran out of those masks really quickly. Uh, I think potentially within like a fortnight. And then we get a message saying, "Oh, 
now we've got a new mask and we can we can test you guys on this new mask and we will get tested on the new mask and it's a bit flimsier and then the same thing happens a fortnight later oh we've run out we need to we've got a new mask Let's, we've got this new mask and and now you essentially are with a mask that is 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 a is a, is a fan, slightly fancier version than the normal kind of masks that you, you you'll find in home bargains so it's um which you know that kind of mask may be well and good if you're just kind of out in the public but when you're right up a meter or two away from a really floridly sick patient you need mm. you need the correct protective equipment so yeah you know why like why were we running out why did we have all these shortages of the protective equipment that's probably a, a supply thing, mm-hmm. which is where I'd, I'd be looking towards government. But then, then also there's a potential that was the appropriate equipment always being used at the appropriate time. And that's perhaps kind of where your point comes into it, where maybe there needs to be a, not necessarily a simulation as such, but discussions and, and, a, and a bit of education of staff so that they know when yeah. to use things and when not to use things. Because I know, you know, we were using huge amounts of kit and there's probably there's probably more efficient ways of using that kit to try and review review patients. Um, and I think that's probably where that bit of bit of education for the, the staff could have could have helped. But we were very much just kind of left in the lurch and it's just trying to figure it out for ourselves. Yeah. Well how does that make you feel, right? When you're not given the right equipment and you mentioned that the guidelines kept changing. I'm, I'm sure that would affect your work. So how did that make you and your colleagues feel when you're going through this situation, expecting to be of service to patients when you could be exposed to a lot of risk? You know, I, I think being exposed to risk isn't something that medical professionals are too adversity mm. we kind of face risk on a daily basis anyway and i don't think it's been any secret that i mean we've certainly been shouting about it for years is that the nhs isn't adequately funded and we don't have this always have the access to the sort of facility that we want in order to provide the kind of care that we'd like for patients but in this in this occasion it was it wasn't just the notion of risk, it was the context within it. And like you've said, the the changing guidelines on a on a daily basis at one point and and they actually kind of said to us, just check it in the morning, check it the guidance at lunchtime and in the evening as well, because it could well change throughout the day. I mean that level yeah. of uncertainty was difficult because you're you'll see a patient in the morning and then, you know, in the evening you'll see a patient. You've got to treat the two differently because the guidance has changed so it was kind of the, all the things that all the skills that we have to try and become pretty well acquainted with as doctors were put under a microscope in that period things like learning to cope with pressure learning to cope with bereavement keeping up to date with the, the most the most current medical knowledge all of those things were put under a microscope because we had to be exercising those skills to the to the, mm. the maximum so it was it was difficult but what i've seen in the hospital i worked in is the the workforce really pulled together 
it, we obviously had bumps in the road. There were difficulties and, you know, our emotions were running pretty high for a few weeks. I mean, we had some really difficult times and difficult things we had to deal with. But I think generally through that difficult period, we pulled together because, you know, you've not really got much of an option. We had to try and find a way through it because you, you've got patients to look after. In some of them, there's a virus in there that's kind of, in some of them, wreaking, wreaking bloody havoc. So you've not got time to sit and, and reflect too much on how the impact it's having at you whilst you're at work because what you've got to do is try and look after that patient. Then perhaps when you, a bit later on when you've got a bit of time and uh, or wait, perhaps when you're on your way home, you can reflect on it and think about it a bit more and then take that back to the team. But some of the time we were dealing with really sick patients and it was just a case of just trying to do what's right for them. So it was difficult, but thankfully now we're sat here where we are with nationally restrictions being lifted, looking back to where we were a few months ago and thinking, yeah, that was that was pretty pretty rough for everybody involved. I, I hope there's a large swathe of your listeners, mate, who you know think that things may have been a bit of an overreaction, who who didn't have to be exposed to any of any of this, who 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 just had to face what was a pretty massive task put on them by our, by the government, and right rightly so, but it's nonetheless still a really difficult task of having to stay at home for you know, weeks and months on end. But certainly in the medical profession, we've, we've learned to really kind of pull together a bit more and not let adversity come between us because adversity and, uh, and hiccups like, like this are, are inevitable. But what doesn't have to be inevitable is, is kind of the, the breakdown of a team as a, as a result of all the negative aspects that adversity can bring. Mm-hmm. So I think we've learned. I think we've learned to... To, to really pull together a lot more and hopefully that will serve us better kind of going forward in terms of patient care yeah but do you think as a result of this now that you feel more appreciation as a doctor we certainly feel more appreciation for uh the kind of society and the, and the way that we were able to live as, as members of the society and also as healthcare professionals working in what the NHS as it was, you know, only six months ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, things seem comparatively easy when you compare, you know, even just the logistical considerations that need to that need to be had when you're going to review a patient or when you're going to on, on, on a ward round or something like that. Things were certainly more straightforward. But I think this has been a wake up call for the the medical profession, because I, I, it certainly has been for the medical profession. But I hope it's also been a wake-up call for the government and future governments to look at what's happened and say it's not really good enough for a country like ours with a healthcare system as good as we've got. We're, we're really lucky to have something like the NHS in this country. It's just, I mean, until you've been elsewhere and worked in other countries and seen uh, the healthcare and the provision of healthcare in a lot of other countries, you can't fully appreciate how lucky we are to have something like the NHS. I think we've got to, we owe it to the people of this country to try and you know, have, have a bit of a better plan than we've had this time. I think the government this time have done as, 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 well, as well as they can. Read into that what you will, but I think they've done as, as good as they can. 
better. We've, mm. we've got to do better than we have. We've got to do better than we have. It's, it's hit this country really hard. And I think there are, there are, there are a lot of lessons that, that must be learned. And, and I know if, I can only speak from a medical standpoint, but there are, there are things that we are, lessons that we have learned that we will definitely be carried forward and are being carried forward now. But do you feel as a nation that we're showing more love towards the NHS and our frontline workers, especially now that, you know, the last couple of months, everyone's been getting out on a Thursday and doing the clap for carers. They've been raising money for charity. How do you feel about that? Because maybe before this pandemic, you might not have been feeling that love from the public. You make a good point, right? I qualified about five or six years ago or so, and and that was in the midst of the whole junior doctor contract conflict. Mm. So a lot of my career has, has been tainted with this sour undertone of, um, I'm going to use the word un, uh, like feeling unappreciated, but that isn't mm. necessary. I'm not necessarily talking about the dynamic between the doctor and the patient. I mean, I mean, um, your Im- the image, yeah, yeah, I think so, and also the way that your, the way that your government kind of value you, and and the way that the healthcare service itself values the, the professionals who work within it. Yeah, it's not been um the kind of blue skies and rainbows that I was expecting it was going to be when I, mm. <laughs> I was uh, <laughs> deciding to go to medical school, and when I was going through yeah. medical school, thinking, ah, oh, this is going to be like. It's going to be like amazing. It's actually been been really difficult. Uh, I think, um, if anything, for us as medical professionals, as you've said, this virus has given us a leaf of life, a leaf of life, because it's, we've seen such appreciation from the public. There's um, there's been times where you you have a really naff shift and you see some really unwell people and have to deal with a lot of things you don't want to have to deal with and you don't feel that you're, you're, you're trained or capable of dealing with and you go home feeling awful um, and you feel quite resentful. And sometimes the clapping kind of goes one way or the other. <laughs> but generally it's been, it's, it, it does give you a bit of a, gives you a bit of a boost. I know a lot of, a lot of the colleagues I worked with in our discussions that we've had at work feel that there is a bit more of an appreciation, a bit more of an understanding of the, some of the sacrifice that healthcare professionals make. I think I think during this period, it's obviously been there's obviously been an increased impact, an increased risk to our health. And unfortunately, I work with doctors whose health have been quite significantly impacted because of this virus. But the notion of, like I said to you earlier in this interview, man, like the notion of risk for health professionals is always there, and the, yeah. the notion of sacrifice is always there. It's just taken a slightly different guise over the past few months. So what what has been nice is is that the public have been coming out and and showing a bit of appreciation. And even just I was driving to the supermarket the other day, and even just seeing in people's apartment windows at the NHS rainbows and like uh, clap for carer kind of signs, mm-hmm. it, it it helps you kind of realise why you came into it. Which you can often, while you came into kind of like this caring profession, which you can easily forget after a, like 12 and a half hours of, you know, dealing with what can be quite harrowing things and you just drive home and feel really resentful of everything because everybody you've looked after has become really unwell or 
multiple patients may have died. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, sometimes even just seeing driving past a Vauxhall Zafira with a rainbow in the back can help put that smile back on your face and help get your feet back on the ground and realize why why you get up and go to work every morning. Yeah, I definitely feel as a nation we've come closer together and we see the value that the NHS has. I think it's shed light on the amazing work you guys do. And I've been across a few awkward situations when I've decided to go for a run on a Thursday evening. And just for the international <laughs> listeners out there, every Thursday for the past few months at 8 p.m., we get out and clap for our carers. And there's been a few occasions where I've, des- when I've decided to go for a run at 7.30 p.m. and I decide to w- walk the rest of the way back and there's just people outside clapping. Waves, waving to the crowds, eh? <laughs> yeah, I feel like Rocky Balboa, you know, with Eye of the Tiger playing in my head, <laughs> just walking back in slow motion. Taking a bow. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think moving forwards, there will be a, a bigger emphasis on making sure we that we equip doctors with the right equipment, the right protection. Uh, hopefully, there's a change moving forward. I hope so, uh, this man. This is a wake-up call. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I, 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 we've, it's, it's got to be. I mean, it's got to be. Like, look at human, uh, human history. This isn't the first virus that's hit us. This isn't the first mm. pandemic that's hit us. We've, you, you don't need to be a historian to know about smallpox or um, the bubonic plague or the Spanish flu. You know, these, these are, these are well-known pandemics that we've lived through. So the fact that this COVID-19 virus has hit us, it can't be a surprise. You listen to kind of really esteemed, uh, virologists, microbiologists, um, epidemiologists, they'll tell you that they've been expecting this sort of thing for years. Mm. And they'll tell you that we're going to get another. Yeah, so many TED Talks, there's so many movies on Netflix that I've actually watched yeah. recently which play out the same exact same mm. plot as what is happening and it's just quite yeah. eye-opening to, to see see that. Like, it's yeah. deja vu, you know? Like, it, exactly, man. It almost seems like it, it, it can seem like... it was like, all predicted. Um, yeah, like science fiction almost, but the way, the way that these things happen, the way that these things spread is... Uh, it's predictable. You can predict it. So it's not—it's not a completely random thing that's happened here. Mm. It's not something that—it's not a one-off uh, occurrence. This isn't even in the first coronavirus that we've had. Not even in recent times, we've had swine flu recently. It's, you got, we got, um, and even the, the SARS that we've had, MERS that we've had. This is um, this is something that is going to keep happening mm. unless we change our practices. And I mean, that's changing our practices on a, on a global scale. So we talk about what, how we can learn from it and what we can do. There's the notion of being reactive or proactive to, to consider. So what we've been doing over the past well, three or four months is being reactive. Hmm. Scrambling to try and get PPE, scrambling to you know, close borders and still restrictions, scrambling to try and get some sort of research underway so that we can understand what we can do to, to fight this virus. But what about being proactive? 
Mm-hmm. And that's where we need to start listening to experts, even though Michael Gove would probably tell us not to. But it, it, might, it might be worth worthwhile doing it in this case because they kind of have been telling us that something like this might happen and have been making recommendations and suggestions of things that we can do. Mm-hmm. And not that I'm an expert on this by any means, man, but I think it, it, doesn't, take an ex, it doesn't take an expert to, to appreciate that there are people out there and there are communities out there of, of experts that have been kind of preaching this and, and telling us that this is going to be a problem. Um, and, and, yeah. and, and I think a lot of, certainly a lot of members of the medical community, but I think a lot of members of the wider community of the public understand a little bit more about the things that might need to be done. I hope people are going to appreciate now the value of something like a international organization like the World Health Organization, the, the WHO, in, in fighting something like this because a virus doesn't care whether, you know, you live in Scarborough or Great Yarmouth or St. Ives, it cares whether it can, it can affect you. Hmm. Um, it, it can affect any human being. It can, it can get, if it gets in your body, it can use you as a host. So I think, I think we've got to really appreciate the value of something like, like the, the WHO. Not necessarily we have to have the, the WHO as it is. There's something like it. Uh, and the multinational organization that can help coordinate not only preventative measures but also then in the event that an outbreak does occur the reactive measures that need to be taken mm-hmm. so i hope the hope the government start to well i hope governments not just our own i hope governments across the world learn from this and fund uh, research adequately yeah uh, fund organizations adequately I think the issue is when it comes to prevention that mm. no one really wants to spend money on something that might not have a return on investment. And I've seen that the example is in healthcare. I've seen it in other industries as well. Mm. But when you want to spend money, you need to have a good business case. And I know, for example, with this pandemic, there's an obvious business case, but I think as humans, we tend not to invest in things that might not pay off. And yeah. I think that's a, that's a behavior we need to change as a society to, to deal with things like this in a better fashion. Yeah, it's not sexy, is it? No. Invest, investing, in, uh, you know, investing hundreds of millions of pounds in research and uh, viral uh, prevention Hmm. isn't isn't particularly sexy hmm. and, and and if you do it really well you don't you reduce the number of outbreaks you get so you don't ever actually end up seeing those hordes of unwell people which yeah. can sometimes then as you said can sometimes be like well what, what the hell are we investing hmm. but it's something that we do already in medicine we do prevention anyway we talk about particularly with something like cardiovascular disease we talk about primary prevention so why this can't then be translated to something like this coronavirus i don't understand yeah. i think it needs to be i suppose why it hasn't already happened i don't understand because yeah it's not sexy and it's not like a bit of research in a, in a lab somewhere by, by some scientists it doesn't seem like a particularly good investment but we've seen the impact now 
not only on, on a human cost, the number of lives that we've lost. And I don't mean just the lives that have been lost here, but the livelihoods that have been lost, people who've lost their jobs, people who've lost their homes. A lot of families have been disrupted. Marriages have been disrupted. Businesses as well. It's huge. Yeah, man, it's huge. And then if you mm. then you start considering the financial implications, I mean, just looking at our country in the UK, the, the level of the level of kind of financial support that the government have had to throw into the system mm. is, is huge. Yeah. It's huge. So we've got to look at ourselves and think, all right, well, this has clearly had an impact. Mm-hmm. Let's do something to try and avoid this. What would it have cost, you know, to have yeah. been better prepared? I think the primary focus should be prevention and then the secondary focus should be early detection. So if you haven't been able to prevent it, can we detect it early and then put some measures in place? Because I think what happened was that when this outbreak occurred, I didn't really see consistency between the different countries. You know, some countries closed their borders, some countries mm. kept them open. I just feel there needs to be a global protocol to deal with these kind of things because if one country decides not to follow those guidelines, it kind of messes up the whole ecosystem. You, know, you yeah. still have the outbreak out there and we're seeing it with some other countries now. We're fortunate to be on the decline now, but you see other countries that are just experiencing the outbreak right now why why is that the case i mean and that and that that's the importance of having something like the who mm. because they are a body that if that have kind of funding from many different nations don't have the don't have the kind of interest of, of one country or, or shouldn't mm. have the interest of one country or one group of countries you know at the heart of their recommendations need to have something like that that they can kind of coordinate the, the the planetary response because it has to be a it has to be just that it can't be one country responding another country responding you look at what's happened in brazil you look at what's happened in the states now that shouldn't it shouldn't be happening it shouldn't be happening there's, there's there's no excuse for it really and i think on a on a local basis there's got to be protocols in place but you're right absolutely on a on a national on an international basis it's got to be a standard there's got to be a standard way of, of responding to this this sort of thing and i think what's happened is a good opportunity for us to to devise that i mean it's all well and good at saying this man this is this is the the trouble this is the trouble with people perhaps who who aren't necessarily involved in 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 formulating these sorts of strategies mm kind of commenting on it because it's difficult because we don't know necessarily the, the ins and outs and the logistics of doing it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, by no means an easy task. No, it's not easy, but we're we're lucky where where I work, I work in the hospital where the first patients from Wuhan were brought to right at the beginning of the outbreak at the end of January it was. And and there's a reason for that, but kind of kind of where my hospital is and where we work. Uh, geographically there's a reason for that but we had a lot of people from public health england a lot of senior members of, of public health england coming to speak to us about the, the the viral outbreak when it kind of happened 
and there was a huge amount of uncertainty in what even they were saying. And, and, and they were the people that we were turning to as the medical professionals, and there was a lot of uncertainty there. And what, what I would have liked to have seen, and I know a lot, a lot of my colleagues would like to have seen, um, and, I, and I, can, I can bet what a lot of members of the public would like to have seen, was a bit more of, of a coordinated approach to it. When we yeah. saw what was going on in other countries in Europe, when we saw what was going on in countries in Asia, is respond. Yeah, it's it, this. It, now things have happened. We're not now in the uh, proactive phase. We're in the reactive phase. So react. When the cases are going through the roof in these countries, we know it's obviously contagious. We don't live in a world uh, like that of the Spanish flu anymore. We live in the 21st century where, you know, air travel is, you know, commonplace. People travel around the world. The world's a much more smaller place. There's a virus like that is going to spread even quick, even faster. So we, need, I mean, we need we need to be more prepared for it. And and for making your making the members of your society wait four or five days for a swab result, which we can now do in a matter of hours, is to my mind, it's not acceptable. But look, we're in that position now. We've we've obviously got the facility now to to do faster testing. But what I, what I hope is that we can, rather than honing some of our reactive measures, is start to really focus on the proactive measures, some of the preventative measures, as we do, as, as we always have done for the past few decades in medicine. Mm-hmm. Is you, you, you really focus on the, the preventative measures because yeah. trying, to, trying to react to every case of, of, a, of an illness that crop crops up is just not a sustainable way of providing healthcare to a population yeah what i've not really seen being emphasized too much in the media is how to boost our immune systems how to have better hygiene better nutrition prioritize sleep vitamins nutrients i think that's missing that education is missing and that could actually go a long way in terms of prevention yeah I mean, whether I'm not sure this is necessarily specific advice to trying to fight off something like COVID-19, but generally, when we talk about our health, there's been there are kind of cornerstones of medical advice that we always kind of go to. There's things that we talk about, like not smoking, not drinking. But I think I I don't know about you. I'd be interested to know what you think about this, man, because um, obviously we've just kind of still been going to work throughout this whole period, and there's been a large number of people that actually just been been at home working at home yeah but still still been at home and i think that's kind of freed up a lot of time for people and what i've seen mm-hmm. in some of my friends who have been doing that for the past few months is it's given them the time and and it's given them the necessity almost to try and look at their life and try and improve their their yeah their health certainly i've seen it with my friends is that something that you guys that, that you'd say is you've seen amongst kind of your own kind of close circles yeah, for sure. I mean, after talking to friends and family members during this period, I do see a lot of them keeping active, either doing home workouts or going for a run. And also a lot of them are doing these online courses to upskill themselves, which is really nice to see. And I suppose for those now working from home, it is slightly easier to do these activities as you're saving on that commute to and from work. But I do think it was really 
difficult to absorb what was happening at first. It was quite surreal. I don't think any of us in our lifetimes have experienced a lockdown like this. So when your freedom is taken away, it's going to be hard to accept for anyone. At the end of the day, we're all creatures of habit. And if something gets in the way of our routines, things that we've been doing for years, it will affect us. So to shift your focus towards your health and personal growth immediately is a challenge with all of this uncertainty. In terms of my own experience, I think I'm coming out of this a much stronger person health-wise and mindset. I've been able to work on some things that I've been neglecting in the past and now I'm actually going ahead with it. And this podcast is an example of something that I've managed to do during this lockdown period. So it's actually been a good opportunity for me to align myself with my purpose, my passions, my interests, and actually do stuff that fulfills me. But I think for some others, people react differently, right? So for me, this has been a period of solitude. And I think solitude gives you the opportunity to explore things that you couldn't before go to areas that you didn't go to before and really have time to reflect on things yeah but i think there's a fine line between solitude and loneliness Mm. in both situations you're alone but you make a choice to be in solitude but when it comes to loneliness it's not a choice no one chooses to be lonely and i think that's the difference between the two where some people are using this period to to thrive in this moment whereas some people are probably struggling and i actually think that fear and loneliness are the bigger pandemics that we have out there in society i mean loneliness increases the risk of mortality it also increases the risk to mental and physical health And I'm not trying to downplay this coronavirus pandemic, but I feel that it has uncovered other pandemics that we have out there, which does a lot of damage to society. And to be honest, man, like if this had happened a few years ago when I lived in Norway by myself, I was pretty lonely in that period where I'd moved to a different country without my friends and family. Mm. I couldn't speak the local language, even though they spoke English pretty well there. But in that period, if this pandemic would have happened, I would have really struggled because I wasn't in solitude. I was actually lonely and I had to keep myself busy. I kept traveling and was always out and about to distract myself from loneliness. So I can imagine there's a lot of people out there who are struggling with this situation, whereas there's other people who are actually enjoying this period. They're managing to do things they couldn't do before they have a bit more time on their hands, like you said. So I think we really need to look out for those people who are in that situation. If you do know someone who is isolating by themselves, that we reach out for them and just see how they are. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Man. I think that's been something that's really, really underestimated, actually, in what's been going on, is the level of kind of, mental health issues that have been precipitated as a result of it you're absolutely right in that it's it's just like whilst all the kind of viral cases were coming in 
in like March and April time, the main other thing that was coming in were people with mental health issues as a result of everything that's been going on. Hmm. Now, that is another thing that I think we really kind of underestimated the impact of, and we have underestimated the impact of, is the, is the psychological impact of something like this. Even just the, the impact of the measures that were implemented. But when you start to consider the longer term impact of things like you know, job losses, the financial implications mm-hmm. of these things on individuals and you know, small business owners, they're pretty significant. We're, we're, we're getting better as a country looking at our mental health without that kind of taboo, stereotyped uh, perspective, which I think is brilliant. It's, it's something that has always been kind of brushed under under the carpet, particularly with men. Like, it's, it's awful seeing what, what, what some men go through and obviously women as well, but hmm. particularly men bad at it and i hope that uh, i encourage to hear what you're saying but i hope people have used this period as an opportunity for Mm self-reflection because there's a degree of things being taken out of your control which people don't like i certainly don't like that i like to have a degree of control of what's going on and things have been wildly out of control (laughs) for the past few months but I hope people have used this oppo- this this month as these past few months as an opportunity for personal growth. To sit mm-hmm. and look, even if you're not necessarily going out to work or you're not able to go and see your friends and family, but use it as an opportunity to understand the importance of friends and family in your life. You, you and I are lucky, man, that we come from a we, we're in a big family, right? We've mm-hmm. got like all manner of cousins all over the place and we're we're a close unit Mm. and i'd like to think that we didn't take our family for granted but i've I've done a lot of thinking over the past few months and and think and thought actually maybe i did like all the gatherings that we've had where there's like you know so many of us all together getting to chill out you know we're never gonna we're not gonna be able to do that for a while where there'd be like 15 yep. or 20 of us in the same house all on the same <laughs> on top of each other. That's, it's going to be a while before we're able to do something like that. And it's given me an appreciation that, you know, my family are, my, are, the, are, the, are, the, are the backbone of my, of my life. They, mm. they kind of give you the reason. They give you the support. They drag you through when you, when you need to be dragged through and stand you up when you need to be stood up. I hope there's, you know, a good proportion of your listeners and, and members of the public not only in the UK, but just across the world. I hope people have used it as an opportunity to reflect on their life, reflect on society, and use it as an opportunity for betterment, not yeah. not as an opportunity for, for detriment, because the, the virus does does that anyway. The virus does mm-hmm. that anyway, but let's fight it by trying to better ourselves as individuals and as a society. Mm-hmm. And I, I reckon, I don't know about you, man, but I, I think that has happened. I think society has pulled together. I think society has become a kinder place. I think society has become a, a more loving place and a more appreciating place. I believe in human beings, and I think we will see we'll see those changes carried forward, even as the restrictions are, are lifted. I think we'll see that carried forward. Yeah, for sure. I've definitely expressed more gratitude towards this period. I started journaling throughout this period as well. I express three things I'm grateful for in the morning and three things at night and you'd be surprised that 
the number of things that I probably wouldn't have been grateful for in the past. Yeah. The, the little things like going to the barbers to get a haircut. You've seen the <laughs> state of my hair at the moment. I'm in desperate need of a haircut. But Tarzan. it's things like that that you you took for granted before. Yeah. yeah. And like you mentioned, friends, family. Yeah, it's just those little things that you realize what you had before this pandemic mm. was so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that's what I mean. I think I think it's been an opportunity for us as, as, as a species to kind of look and think, you know, things were okay before. There were, there, you know, we had problems, but you were still able to go and see your family and your friends. I mean, that's been such an impact for people. And I hope it gives us a bit more of an appreciation to look at ourselves and say, "All right, look, let's try and let's try and make this world a better a better place." And I think now, I mean, since all this is is is, is gone on, movements like Black Lives Matter has really come to to gain some significant deserved prominence. And I hope the residual effects of of what's happened as a result of the virus can can go towards you know movements like black lives matter that help us as as a species overcome problems which have been a problem for us for years i hope we can really mm-hmm. move from it and i think we've got the capacity to do it i think this has impacted us for, for a generation of people it's been such a massive thing i hope i hope we use it to better the world that we live in i think we will so do you think we'll come out of this stronger as a society or do you think we would be pushed apart do you think we'll be as close with each other in terms of fearing getting too close with each other or do you think we would actually get closer together as a society as a result of this i think there's going to be a period of a hangover from this virus Mm. i don't think in the long term it is going to stop people from wanting to be as close as they always have been. Mm. J- just look at um, you know restrictions lifted on on pubs um, and and hairdressers only recently. People got the opportunity to go out, um, and and you could just see in people's faces a, a degree of relief and of appreciation. I think they, they seized that opportunity for community again. I don't think, you know, we're, we are naturally uh, communal creatures. I don't think mm. this virus or any virus is going to stop, is going to take that away from us because it's who we are. Mm-hmm. What I think it, what I think it will do is probably just cause a degree of hesitancy initially, uh, but hopefully some change going forward positive change but i don't think it's i don't think it's going to interfere with our community spirit as humans i don't think i don't think so i hope it doesn't anyway yeah i know last time we talked you'd mentioned the grant study from harvard university i think you're right that we're social creatures and we do need to be around each other yeah to live a fulfilled life yeah, definitely. So I, d- I don't know how many of your listeners are going to be familiar with the grant study. But basically, it's a really fascinating thing, and I'd, I'd recommend anybody to go and read a bit more about it. 
but Harvard Medical School have, for the past 80 odd years, been doing this really, really fascinating study, looking at a number of things. But the thing that really intrigued me was happiness. How do you lead a happy life? And I mean, that's that's the question. It's been the question of, of you know, many generations is how, what is it to lead a happy life? What is it to lead, you know, a fulfilled life? You know, the, is it, is it money? Is it, is it holidays? Is it experiences? Like what, like, what is it? What is it? But what we've seen from this grant study, which I think is so intriguing, is when you take into account all these other variables, whether if you really want to drive a Ferrari, whether you drive that Ferrari or whether you drive a Fiat Punto, what really makes you happy is having meaningful relationships with other mm. people, be that friends or family, but having meaningful relationships with other people. That gives you happiness and that really harks to the human being's sense of community. And it's that strong, mm. is that there are all these other forces in the world, but the one thing that really makes us happy is the sense of community. And I I think it's going to take a lot more than a virus and I think it's going to take something much stronger than this to try and even get closer at breaking that spirit. Mm-hmm. And what do you think the future of healthcare would be? Because, well, I've read things that there were plans to integrate you know, self-diagnostic tools within phones in the next couple of years, but now that's been accelerated because of this so that we can use our handheld devices as diagnostic tools essentially what are your thoughts around that and artificial intelligence to help patients there's definitely a role for it there's definitely a role for integrating technology into the provision of healthcare i know a few people who've kind of started health tech companies um, some of who have done, who've been really successful, really successful doing it. But I think the vast majority of health professionals would would approach it with a degree of trepidation, and the reason is, is that there's a lot to be said in terms of in terms of providing healthcare, whether that be, you know, diagnostics or, or management. To providing healthcare to a patient requires it, 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 there's a brilliant book that a lot of uh, doctors will know of, and it's, it's the Oxford Medical Handbook of Clinical Me- Medicine. And in there, on one of the very first pages, the authors talk about medicine being an art, not a science. And as I've got more seniors, I've progressed out of medical school and I've progressed through the first couple of years of being a doctor and then into higher training. You really learn to appreciate that medicine is not a science. Hmm. Practicing medicine, being a doctor, is almost an art form hmm. in, a, in, a, in a strange way. Because you can know your your disease kind of statistics inside out. You can know your diagnostic pathways. You can know your management pathways but you're dealing with a human being and they're a lot more complicated than just, you know, one plus one equals two. 
So I think in terms of integrating something like a, a kind of apps and things, diagnostic apps, a lot of doctors would approach that with a degree of a degree of trepidation. We're, we're we're complex beasts, human beings, and I think it pays to 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 have human beings look at human beings. Sometimes, sometimes using uh, algorithm algorithms and things can oversimplify what what in us is quite a a, um, a complicated system. Hmm. But there is definitely a, there is definitely a role for it, and I and I think I'm really encouraged to see that um, you know whether their kind of private firms are invest, investing in some of these health startups because I think I think they can be used to help us, particularly with something like this. And we've seen I've got friends who work out in Australia and New Zealand, and I know they've had detection apps used to help kind of control the the spread of COVID nineteen over there. I don't think they were perfect, but there's definitely a role for them uh, in 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 healthcare provision. But they're very, very much, in my eyes, very much supplementary at this stage. Yeah. And just to close this off, if I gave you as much funding as possible, <laughs> if I gave you a blank check for funding, what would you do with it? <laughs> that's a difficult question man but look here's two things that I'd do because otherwise I could give you like a hundred things I'd do. I'll give you two things that I'd do. I would improve patient education considerably mm. and I don't just mean on leading a healthy lifestyle what I mean is I'd, I'd improve patient education on leading a healthy lifestyle fine Things like the risks of smoking. Help people really understand the risks of smoking, really understand the risks of drinking, the risks of persistent, long-term high salt and sugar intake. Understand what they do to the body. Mm-hmm. So that if people understand, I think they will, they will, they're more likely to engage with, with measures to, to reduce the, 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 those risks. So I'd, I'd, I'd educate. But also, I'd educate them not only about their body, but I'd educate them about their healthcare system so that they understand it. The healthcare system is so damn complicated. I remember once we had to, um, as as really newly qualified doctors in the first couple of years, we went on this teaching day to help us understand the healthcare system, and it is so complicated, it's unreal. And I think what would help is if people really understood the service, how to access services so that they don't always necessarily need to go and see their GP or they don't always need to turn up to A&E. I think a lot of the pressures that we experience within the healthcare service are because we've not actually educated the public as to how to use that amazing system that they've got. So I would I would invest a lot of funding in that because I think that potentially has much longer term implications if you um, the the bit about educating people about their health that that is what we would normally kind of term medicine something like primary prevention so that would be Mm -hmm. that would that would be something that has long-term implications Uh, if if you have the right funding and the right drive then you can do it but it's but it's it's difficult it's difficult you look at smoking for example 
we knew that smoking was had concrete evidence that smoking was bad for human beings back in the 1950s yet it took how many decades five or six decades for us to actually ban it indoors in this country hmm. so that's how that's how difficult changes is, is to institute but i think with appropriate education and people understanding the healthcare system i think you can have significantly better health across the country hmm. um well i think it's around there's on, conflicts of interest there's conflicts of interest as well right which oh, yeah, doesn't exactly. help right? yeah yeah it's people making money out of these things yeah <laughs> and that in return i don't know provides taxes and that then goes back into the economy so i think it's just a vicious cycle with some of these things that we can't completely wipe out yeah it is and these are these are societal behaviors so what you're talking and and this is why i think we need to be a bit more sensitive just talking about the the notion of societal change in the context of this covid 19 Hmm. I've I've heard a lot. I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot, both in my workplace, but also on on the news uh, online. I've I've seen a lot about finger pointing towards countries like China about their their wet animal markets, and you think that is a that is a cultural, you know, a behavioural thing. So to just kind of point the finger at that and say, ah, oh, that's the issue, is is to almost miss is to almost miss the point. Because I think, and you you do you do human beings a disservice by finger pointing in that way, because you lo- you lose the opportunity to really have a proper dialogue and try and understand people's position and try and make necessary changes as as a, as a whole. Yeah, I think this country smoking and drinking, but hopefully not in the future, not not so much smoking anymore. Uh, with the changes that we've seen over the past decade, but there've been big problems. But again, I think the core of it is is patient education, is helping to helping the public to understand the notion of risk, um, and helping them to understand the notion of risk reduction. A lot of doctors don't fully understand that notion, so but I think if if you had the right resource, you could really help people to understand it. So I think that that would be something that I could do because, yeah, I mean, you talk about money, but you. <laughs> You encourage people to not spend that on on something that detriments their health and onto something that improves their health. Hmm. One person's loss is another person's gain. You, in, you, in, you if you incentivize healthy activities, then you can you can institute some sort of change. But you need you need financial backing to do that. You need government will to do that, and you need a, a lot of <laughs> human power to try and do it. Um, mm. So if you gave me unlimited funding, that's the first thing I'd do. The second thing I would do, the second thing I would do is this. We've mentioned it earlier, but it would be to really try and improve the mental health services in this country. Mm. They've mental health has been so massively underfunded for decades, right? Mm-hmm. And and you, it's hard to appreciate the the comorbidity associated with that. And not just in terms of the effect on the individual, but then the impact on families, the impact on their employment. You know, these are people who aren't able to lead the sort of lives they want to live, have the same sort of fulfillment, contribute to society in the way they want to. There's a there's a massive impact of of health, and there's a reason that we 
you constantly hear this chopping on about, you know, one is suicide is one of the biggest killers of men under the age of forty. Hmm. And 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 that's because in part we don't have adequate funding for mental health services. And that isn't just talking that isn't just kind of inpatient units for for people who require it. It's actually again about the preventative side of things. Educating people, helping them to understand their emotions, helping them to understand the challenges that are going on in their life, teaching them coping mm-hmm. mechanisms so that they're not necessarily turning to things like cigarettes and alcohol and or, or illicit drugs to cope. They're, they're, they're able to kind of understand what's going on in their life because it's, it's a difficult thing to live as a cognizant human being. You encounter a lot of, a lot of difficulties and I think we're not equipped often we're not equipped with the right tools to, to cope with some of those uh, those challenges mm-hmm. that we're faced with so i think that's that's another thing that i do and it would be something that i would institute from a young age and i know mm. certain schools do this where they teach kind of mindfulness and reflection it's something that we're we're really encouraged to do as doctors we are always encouraged to reflect a large part of my assessment as a doctor is how i reflect on my practice and how mm. my practice makes me feel, uh, whether things make me feel crap or whether they make me feel good, whether I feel a, a sense of achievement. Um, and, and, and airing those sorts of discussions, having those sorts of discussions on a regular basis about what's going on in your life can, can really have a positive impact. Um, so I would, uh, that's the second thing I'd do to try, and, to try and make that sort of societal change where we feel more comfortable to talk about our problems, hopefully at a point before they become so significant that they require us to go and seek the help of a professional. But that when we do need to go and seek that help, then that provision is there. And if that means, you know, therapy, talking therapies, group therapies, or whether it means inpatient treatment, then that's there. That's what I'd like Mm -hmm. to see. All right, man. What a great way to end this episode. So focus on education and mental health thanks a lot for doing this man not at all dude thanks for having me i really appreciate it and i wish you all the all the best with this podcast i think you're doing a really good thing man thanks a lot hopefully i'll get to see you soon yeah soon man soon (laughs) cheers man take it easy it was great to hear from someone who was actually working on the ground during this pandemic to really get a doctor's perspective on what is happening instead of hearing it from the news or social media. And I applaud all the frontline workers for their efforts. They have put their lives on the line for us. We have all been impacted by this pandemic in some shape or form. The number of loved ones we have lost during this period has been tragic, and my thoughts go out to those who have. But I do strongly believe that we will come out of this stronger as a society and as individuals. It has been a real test of resilience. At the end of the day, we are all social creatures and need to be around each other. I'm sure governments have had a wake-up call on how to deal with future pandemics. But one thing we can all do that is in our complete control is to look out for others and to look out for ourselves in terms of our health and well-being. If you do know someone who is vulnerable, reach out to them and make their day. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit subscribe 
so you can get a notification when a new episode is released. Also share it with your friends and family or whoever you think would be interested in this episode. I would really appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to reach out to myself, you can find me on Instagram. I'll leave the info in the show notes and I'll see you all in the next episode.